Pie in the Sky Media. This series contains adult language and descriptions of graphic violence throughout. Listener discretion is advised. I wish I could tell you something that will make you feel safer, but I don't think I can. No, I mean, I think that that's what makes the genre so popular is that you can't and we want to try to figure it out and we want to, you know, full circle understand it. And, you know, you can't read people's minds, at least not yet. So I think we think if we figure it out, we're safe. And that's just not necessarily true because too much of our figuring out is based on these formulas that aren't necessarily right. Welcome back to the Murder Chronicles. I'm your host, Carolyn Osorio. You're listening to episode 47, The Boy Next Door. There's an old saying, if it looks like a duck, walks like a duck, well, you know the rest. But that saying is actually less about a duck and more about us humans. How we have the need to perceive who people are based on what they look like and how they act. In fact, when it comes to serial killers like Ted Bundy, they're counting on us thinking they're quote-unquote normal-looking, when in reality, they're the people we should fear the most. Bundy's long dead, but the enigma of who he was, how he exploited our own ideas of what a good person looks like, in spite of evidence to the contrary, is still very much alive and well. I'm Dr. Katherine Ramsland. I teach forensic psychology and criminology at DeSales University, and I'm an author. Dr. Katherine Ramsland is the author of 71 books and is an expert on extreme offenders. One of her books, How to Catch a Killer, discusses Ted Bundy's crimes. And for this episode, we talk about some of the psychology behind his murder spree, but also our own. People are more attracted to attractive people. They do tend to believe them more readily than unattractive people. Uh, that's These are just the facts of psychology. Theodore Bundy is one of the most infamous, widely written about and investigated serial killers of all time. And yet, there's still a lot of myths surrounding his motivations and unsolved cases that he could be linked to. Ted Bundy would admit to murdering 30 women between 1974 and 1978. But experts suspect that number could be closer to 100. You know, that's the way, that's the thing it is. It's just, there's a lot of cases that are Ted Bundy cases across this country that the agencies have no clue that it's a Ted Bundy case because it's only one murder. You know, he's, he's, he drove clear across the country. He went from here to Vermont then down to Florida and, you know, he was all over the place. And he didn't just, and he, he would have stopped places and he probably killed all across this country. And to that agency, it's just, it's just a single murder, right? We have this one unsolved murder. They don't have any clue that has anything to do with um, Ted Bundy. That's retired Seattle homicide police detective Cloyd Steiger. He's also the author of Homicide, The View from Inside the Yellow Tape, and Seattle's forgotten serial killer, Gary Jean Grant. We may never know the true extent of his murderous rampage, but even cases closer to home, where he wasn't just driving through, are unsolved and linked to Ted Bundy. Like the disappearance of Anne-Marie Burr, who many believe was his first murder victim when he was a teenager. Anne-Marie Burr was eight years old in August of 1961. She lived with her large family in a modest brick bungalow in the north end of Tacoma, Washington. It was the tail end of summer on August 31st. In the back of everyone's mind was the fact that school was just around the corner. Anne-Marie was the big sister to her three siblings. Seven-year-old Julie, Greg was five, and little Mary was three. On that Wednesday, the sunshine had been blotted out by dark, foreboding clouds. The air was muggy. It felt like a storm was brewing. But this didn't faze Anne-Marie, who burst through the door that day, begging her mother Bev for a sleepover at her friend's house. Bev nixed it right away. She wanted to get the kids back into a regular bedtime routine. Before school started, to ease the pain of those upcoming early mornings. By nightfall, the wind had kicked into high gear. Heavy rain pelted against rooftops. A real batten-down-the-hatches kind of night. But the Burr family was safely tucked into their sturdy brick tutor. And like a well-oiled machine, all the kids were in bed for the night as the storm raged outside. Anne-Marie shared a room with her baby sister, who was still recovering from a broken arm. 
and she began crying in the middle of the night. Dutiful Anne walked her sister into their parents' bedroom, where Bev soothed Mary's cries for a moment, and then sent the girls back to bed. And soon, the house was quiet again. But then suddenly, Barney, the family dog, unleashed a series of sharp barks, loud enough to rouse Bev and Dawn for a minute. Their ears were cocked, listening. But Barney stopped, and they blamed the storm for spooking the pooch, having no idea that evil had entered their home. At 5 a.m., Bev awoke with a start. For some unknown reason, dread filled her chest. She immediately went to check the children. Julie and Greg and Mary were accounted for, but Anne-Marie's bed was empty. She wasn't anywhere in the house, and the front door was ajar, the dining room window open. Outside, they went to the open window and were horrified when they saw a garden bench had been moved just underneath it. A faint imprint of a tennis shoe could be seen on the bench. Blood rushed to Bev's ears from her pounding heart. Where was her daughter? Anne-Marie's father would scour the neighborhood. At a nearby construction site at the University of Puget Sound, he saw mounds of fresh dirt in piles around deep ditches. Mitchell would go up his spine as he watched a teenage boy kicking dirt into a ditch with his foot. The kid looked up and had a smirk on his face. In the coming days, Don would beg the police to search that site. And when they went back four days later, it was too late. All of the excavation sites had been filled in, and despite a huge manhunt and a $5,000 reward, there would be no ransom note, no tips, no leads. And Anne-Marie would never be seen again. What they didn't know back then was that surly teen just could have been Ted Bundy. He lived in the neighborhood, and days before, neighbors would tell police that they'd seen someone peering into the Burr's windows, but the witnesses didn't get a clear look at who the person was. So he was like 14 then, and that probably would have been about the size shoe he wore. So, I mean, that's, you know, those are the type of things. And, and this guy's a notorious serial, serial killer that didn't live far away and was known to ride his bicycle through the neighborhood. And this little girl disappeared in the middle of the night. Of course, he denied that he did it. But, you know, that some serial killers will admit to some and not to others because they want to, you know, they don't want to be thought of as a child killer, although he killed Kimberly Leach, who was 12. Anne-Marie's parents would have to live with the fact that they'd been so focused on providing a loving and stable home life for their daughter that they hadn't made space in that bubble for the darkness. They hadn't prepared Anne-Marie for the evil in the world. Anne-Marie's mother would be tormented by the fact that they taught their daughter that everyone was good. They'd never discussed that people could be bad, even a boy next door. Smiling, handsome, mild-mannered, but underneath, the visage, as he rode his bike throughout the neighborhood, he very well could have been scheming, even then, on how to abduct, sexually assault, torture, and murder young girls. In 1965, four years after Anne-Marie's abduction, Ted Bundy would graduate from high school. That fall, he would attend the University of Puget Sound, where Anne-Marie's parents believe that he buried her. Cloyd says that Anne-Marie's disappearance and presumed murder is one among many other cold cases that investigators are still trying to figure out if Bundy was responsible. In hindsight, they would find out that Ted Bundy was the type of serial killer who enjoyed coming back to crime scenes. Cloyd says that he spoke to a Seattle police officer who recalled being at a crime scene and meeting Ted Bundy in the 1960s. Two flight attendants that were uh, roommates in a house in Queen Anne, and they were asleep when somebody came in in the middle of the night and bludgeoned them with a board. It's very similar to Chi Omega, and bludgeoned them both severely. Uh, one of them died at the scene. The other actually survived because she had curlers in her hair, but she suffered brain damage and has no recollection of the event. And so, and it was a terrible crime. And you know, that's that's one over the years people have speculated that Bundy could have done, and I tend to agree that he probably did do it. Like I said, he worked at the Safeway, not too far away, and uh, and it's exactly basically the same MO as Kyle Omega down in Florida. And he told me 
I goes, this guy's close to 90 years old now. He told me he was standing on this on the outside of the uh, perimeter when this young guy came walking up to him and said, hey, what's going on here? And he said, oh, it's a homicide. And he said, can I go in? And, no, no, you can't go in. And he, goes, and he says, the guy said, hi, I'm Ted, and shook his hand and walked away. And he sure to this day, that was Ted Bundy. He was so brazen and so cocky. And, you know, and he thought they could never tie it to him. And he was, and he was obviously maybe right because it's been... 50 some years later he's still not he was never charged with that case and it isn't cleared but uh that some people just are that way again it's part of their psyche it's not necessarily the whole killer comes back to the scene of the crime doesn't isn't necessarily true but just because of the way bundy was it sounds like exactly something he would have done by the fall of 1966 bundy transferred to the university of washington in seattle from 1967 to 68 he was in a relationship with stephanie brooks who according to the lore, broke his heart. And that's why Ted Bundy's victims looked like Stephanie, because he was getting back at her for breaking up with him. But according to Dr. Ramsland, that's only part of the story. Dr. Ramsland writes a blog for Psychology Today, and I recently read an article she co-wrote about debunking some of these long-standing myths about Ted Bundy and why people want to hold on to certain beliefs about him. In my class that's devoted to Bundy, and that is that he always went for victims with long, dark hair parted in the middle. And first of all, we don't even know who all his victims are. We don't. So, but if you take the ones we do know and you line up all the pictures, there's a lot. That, that some are blonde, some have bangs, some have side parts, some have long, some have short hair. You know, it's all over the place. And even he said, what? What? <laughs> I don't think so. But it was, it became this whole way of understanding serial killers that they have victim types in terms of their appearance. And to some degree, that's right, because he did want sort of, pretty college age kind of girls right but but part your hair in the middle was the fashion at the time so the probability was high that his victims would have their hair part in the middle even though not all of them did she says that there's something inside of us that likes to put things in boxes so that we can understand what's going on around us even if it's not true i talk about this need for formulas that we need to have to put these serial killers into boxes. And I use that myth as, you know, as sort of an introduction to the subject area of Ted Bundy, because you'll see this all the time. Some people explained it as, oh, well, his girlfriend in college who rejected him had long brown hair parted in the middle. So this was some subconscious way of getting back at her. Mm -hmm. But he directly got back at her by getting back together with her getting engaged again, and then rejecting her. So why does he need substitutes? I'm guilty of this too. We want these boxes because for whatever reason, it makes us feel better. I don't know why, but like I never heard the back end of that. I heard that she broke up with him because he was a compulsive liar and that he seemed kind of wishy-washy in his career. But I didn't hear the fact that he got back together with her and then broke up with her and that he was the one that ended it. You don't always hear the full story. Well, we like boxes because it gives us a sense of having mastered certain information, especially dangerous information. So that way we feel safer, but we have to be aware of that and that it, because it it is part of the support system for maintaining false beliefs and what I call in the article belief perseverance, where even when the facts completely dispute <laughs> what the belief is, people hang on to the beliefs. That's that's about ego. That's about wanting to have this belief. It's not about the facts. And so I think the psychology of this that we have to understand is there are reasons why people want to have certain beliefs in place that they don't want to hear the facts. They want those beliefs. We'll get to the other myths later in the show. But for now, back to Ted Bundy's timeline. In early 1969, Ted Bundy drove to Vermont, where he supposedly learned that he was born out of wedlock. Cloyd says, coincidentally, on that trip, a woman is found murdered nearby. He was born, actually, in Burlington, Vermont, in like a home for unwed mothers, basically. And this girl lived like right next to that home and was found murdered when he was there, when he was probably there. I don't know if they got it linked down, but... So he, you know, that, that's the thing. He's He's been to that area. You can sh show him in the area when the murder happened. It's a murder that matches his M.O. 
a persistent rumor when it comes to deconstructing Ted Bundy that he was potentially the product of incest, that his father was also his grandfather. Which I thought would have been fascinating. I think it's fascinating, but I think it's scary too. I mean, yeah. to be judged by your, you know, I mean, incest is like, ooh, you know, you don't yeah. want that in your family, right? No, and you can't no. really, you can't help it if you're the product of it, you know? You can't, no, you can't at all. I mean, that's, and he's not the first one that's been that way. I mean, but, and, and that's, I mean, that's not an excuse for how he ended up, but he had a lot of deep anger about a lot of stuff of his upbringing and stuff. Like I said, he went back to Vermont to the unwed mother's home where he was born. And then coincidentally, while he's there, the lady lives, girl lives in the house next door is murdered. By the fall of 1969, Bundy is back at UW and he begins a long-term relationship with Elizabeth Kendall, who at the time had a three-year-old daughter. Ted and Elizabeth would date between 1969 to 1974, but Bundy was absolutely living a double life. From 1970 to 1972, he's active in local politics, he was a campaign aide to a Seattle governor, and it's during this time, around 1971, that he worked with Anne Rule, the woman who would become the queen of true crime, but at the time worked alongside Bundy at a suicide hotline in Seattle. He was my partner at the crisis clinic in Seattle, and every, Monday, or every Sunday and every Tuesday night, Ted Bundy and I were locked up all night long alone together in this big old Victorian mansion in the highest crime district of Seattle. And we were saving lives. And he would walk me to my car when I left at three or four in the morning and say, Ann, please be careful on the way home. Lock your doors. I don't want anything bad to happen to you. He was sympathetic. He had a gentle voice. He was so understanding. And he was good at keeping people alive. Anne would later go on to write The Stranger Beside Me about her time with Ted Bundy. After Ted graduated from UW with a degree in psychology in 1972, he would start law school at the University of Puget Sound, while at the same time educating himself in the ways of law enforcement. He was studying how the police caught killers, probably to be titillated, but also to understand he was getting a master's degree in sexual Murder. Ted Bundy was once employed by the Seattle Crime Commission, where he learned how to exploit the limits of law enforcement. There was very little back in that time to, to link cases. And you're right, there was very little communication before agencies, between agencies, excuse me, but they, uh, he would rely on that. And that was true. If you cross uh, uh, jurisdictional lines and scattered your evidence, scattered your victims, then you're much more likely that you were then much more likely to not be linked to a crime. And and he did that here. You know, he was in King County. He went over to Ellensburg. You know, he went all over the places like that. Hiding behind his quote-unquote normal life, with a girlfriend playing stepfather to her young daughter, going to political gatherings, hobnobbing with politicians in the upper class, no one had any idea he was a killing machine in a tan-colored Volkswagen bug. A predator who used his charming nature and good looks to lure his victims crisscrossing Washington and Oregon between November 1973 and June of 1974, Ted Bundy would abduct and murder at least seven young women. On June 11th, Ted Bundy would abduct and murder Georgianne Hawkins near her University of Washington sorority house. Here he is describing how he tricked her into helping him to Detective Bob Keppel. I was moving up the alley using a, uh, a briefcase and some crutches and a young woman walked down and about halfway down the block I encountered her and asked her to help me carry the briefcase which she did and we walked back up the alley basically when I reached the car what happened was I knocked her knocked her unconscious with the crowbar and uh, I handcuffed her and put her in the driver's I mean the passenger side of the car and drove away one of the things that makes it a little bit, well, among the things that makes it difficult is that uh, at this point she was quite lucid talking about things. It's, it's funny, it's, it's fun, funny, but it's odd the kinds of th things people say in, under those circumstances. She had a Spanish test the next day and she thought that I had taken her to help tutor me for a Spanish test. It's kind of odd. The long and short of it was that 
that I again knocked her unconscious and strangled her. Can you hear that? The Hawkins girl's head was severed and taken up the road about 25 to 50 yards and buried in a location about 10 yards west of the road on a rocky hillside. By this time it was almost dawn, but on this particular morning I, I was just absolutely Again, just shocked, kind of scared to death, shocked, horrified. About, and I went down the road, throwing the briefcase, the, the, the crutches, the rope, the clothes, just tossing them out the window. And the crowbar, everything. The handcuffs, everything. I got to get mad at myself a few weeks later because I'd have to go out and buy another pair. I mean, it's not comical, but that's what would happen. This was just, I was in a, a sheer state of panic, of just absolute horror you know uh, it's like at that point in time this consciousness of what has really happened is like you break out of a fever or something i would that is and uh, so i would i drove <laughs> talk about details coming back i couldn't find one of the shoes so i thought it was there but it wasn't so i went back this was this was the next day Got on my bicycle, rode back to that little parking lot. I knew there were police all over the place by that time. So I went back to that parking lot and I found both pierced ear, the, the pierced earrings and the shoe laying in the parking lot. So I surreptitiously gathered them up and rode off. So, there you are. Up until July 1974, Ted Bundy was an active serial killer getting away with murder. But that would all change that summer at Lake Sammamish, when Bundy was strolling for victims at a yearly summertime event at the popular park. Bundy had his arm in a fake cast to elicit sympathy as he went up to young women asking them to help him load his sailboat into his vehicle, exploiting their trust. Between the hours of 10 a.m. and 4.30 p.m., Ted Bundy would separately kidnap Janice Ott and Denise Nasland from Lake Sammamish State Park. When Denise and Janice were reported missing, police would begin to piece together witness statements from the park that day. One person would say they overheard Janice say, Hi, I'm Jan, to a preppy-looking man whose arm was in a sling. He was wearing shorts and a button-down shirt. And he would reply, Hi, I'm Ted. The last time Janice was seen alive was pushing her bike alongside the man named Ted. Other witnesses would come forward who were able to describe Ted's Volkswagen bug, and a description of the man. A composite sketch was made. Each lead has to be followed. Every phone call has to be made. Most lead nowhere. Some pan out with a speck of information that may someday help clear up the mystery of the whereabouts of Janice Ott and Denise Naslin. In an interview later, Bundy would say that Janice was still alive when he kidnapped Denise and that he made one of them watch as he murdered the other. In September, a couple months after their abduction, the remains of Janice Ott, Denise Nasland, and Georgian Hawkins were recovered two miles from Lake Sammamish in a wooded area. Shortly after the Lake Sammamish murders, Bundy packed up and moved to Utah. It was a place they weren't looking for a suspect named Ted, who drove a Volkswagen Bug. So in September of 1974, Bundy enters the University of Utah's law school. A month later, two women in the area disappeared. Then, in November of 1974, Bundy would try to abduct a young woman named Carol Durant from a shopping mall. He introduced himself as Officer Roseland, telling her that someone had tried to break into her car and that she needed to go with him to the police station to file a report. Carol agreed to go with him, but she started to get suspicious. He directed her inside of his Volkswagen Bug, which clearly didn't seem to her like it was a car that a police officer would drive. Inside his vehicle, he lunged toward her, but she was able to jump out of the car. And as she began to run away, he came at her with a crowbar. At the street, she was able to flag down a car and the driver took her to a police station. After failing to kill Carol, Bundy would abduct and murder Debbie Kent later that day from her school in Bountiful. Botching the abduction of Carol meant that Utah law enforcement were looking for her kidnapper and the vehicle she described, a tan Volkswagen Bug. Meanwhile, back in Washington state, Ted Bundy's girlfriend, Elizabeth, is hearing about the murders in Utah, and she's making the connection that young women were disappearing wherever he went. 
She would report Ted Bundy to police multiple times, saying that her boyfriend's name was Ted and that he drove a tan Volkswagen Bug. While living in Utah, Bundy would drive to Colorado, specifically trolling ski resorts for victims. He knew how to fit right in. Between the months of January to July 1975, it's believed that Bundy murdered at least seven young women. But on August 16, 1975, Bundy's combination of gaming the system, luck, and manipulation would run out. At 3 a.m. while on patrol, a Utah police sergeant, Bob Hayward, saw a tan 1968 Volkswagen Bug parked outside a home. There was a man sitting in the vehicle, alone, behind the wheel. And the officer was suspicious because he knew that there were young women that lived there. When Sergeant Hayward pulled up to the vehicle, the driver took off. But eventually, Sergeant Hayward was able to force the Volkswagen to pull over. He ran to the car and there was a brief struggle with the suspect inside. It was Ted Bundy. And once he was secured inside the police officer's vehicle, he took a look inside of the tan Volkswagen Bug and made a chilling discovery. The passenger seat had been removed and there was what appeared to be a kill kit inside the vehicle. It contained an ice pick, handcuffs, a ski mask, pantyhose with holes cut to form a mask, gloves, flashlight, and trash bags. He would book Bundy on charges of evading an officer, but there was nothing substantial to hold him, and he was able to make bail the next day. But the arresting officer couldn't shake the feeling that there was something very off about Ted Bundy and that kit that he had in his vehicle. He brought his concerns to the sheriff, who just happened to be his brother, and they went to speak with some detectives, who thought that the name Ted and the tan Volkswagen bug sounded familiar. It wasn't long before they were talking to law enforcement agents in Washington, where Ted was from, and they found out that Ted Bundy was on a short list of suspects for murdering young women, and that the murders in Washington had stopped after Ted Bundy had left the state, right around the time that women started disappearing in Utah. In October 1975, Bundy would be identified in a lineup by Carol Deranch, a young woman he'd attempted to abduct nearly a year earlier, when he posed as a police officer at the mall. Ultimately, he would be arrested and charged with the aggravated kidnapping and attempted criminal assault of Carol Deranch. During the trial for his attempted kidnapping and assault of Carol, Bundy would give interviews in front of the camera like a pompous prince who's been wrongfully accused, who can't wait for his day in court. How do you feel about the justice system in general, based on your experience? <laughs> well, I'm sure it works, and you've got to have faith it'll work, or else you'd be, you'd be reduced to some kind of, uh, you know, mumbling idiot. Uh, I believe it works. I believe it needs to be improved. When you mention improvements, does that mean uh, ultimately you want to uh, get involved in the criminal justice system? Well, <laughs> yes, I intend to complete my legal education and become a lawyer and uh, be a damn good lawyer. Ted Bundy would be convicted of the kidnapping charge on March 1st of 1976 he would be sentenced to a minimum of one year in prison with a maximum of 15 years. But more charges were on the way. Washington, Colorado, and Utah were getting on the same page. Combing through Bundy's Volkswagen bug, Utah investigators would find hairs that could be traced back to multiple victims. Ted Bundy would be charged with the murder of Karen Campbell, which he committed in Colorado and was transferred to Aspen in January of 1977 to stand trial. Bundy would insist on serving as his own attorney. He would ask the judge during a recess if he could research his case at the law library on the second floor. The judge would issue an order saying that Bundy was to have unfettered access to the court's library. While upstairs, Bundy escaped by jumping out of a second-story window in June of 1977. He would be recaptured six days later after living in the woods nearby. Over the next six months, Bundy would purposely lose a significant amount of weight. Somehow, he'd been able to get a map of the jail, which meant that he knew the jailer's apartment was near his cell. So during the Christmas break, Bundy would remove the ceiling light in his jail cell. He maneuvered his body through the crawl space and into the apartment, where he put on regular street clothes and walked out the door on December 30th, 1977. Because of the holidays, no one realized he was gone until the next day, which gave him a 12-hour head start. Bundy boarded a plane to Chicago, then a train to Michigan, where he would ultimately steal a car and drive to Atlanta, then a bus to Tallahassee, Florida. 
Ted Bundy could have dropped out of sight, but he didn't do that. He began his next reign of terror that he would later refer to as his barbaric state. Within two months, while on the run, he would attack five people, murdering three of them. On January 15, 1978, at 3 a.m., Bundy would creep inside the Chi Omega sorority house near Florida State University. He savagely beat and strangled Margaret Bowman and Lisa Levy to death. He would bludgeon Karen Chandler and Kathy Kleiner as they slept. They would survive. Later that day, he broke into Cheryl Thomas's apartment. She was also a student at Florida State University. Cheryl's roommates heard some noise coming from her room. When she didn't answer, they called the police. She survived the attack, but Bundy was in the wind again. On February 9th, Ted Bundy abducted 12-year-old Kimberly Leach from her school in Lake City, Florida. Leach was one of Bundy's youngest victims, his last murder before he was apprehended. The following week, it was 1.30 in the morning, a Florida police officer observed a man in a Volkswagen. So he ran the plate and discovered it was a stolen car. He pulled the driver over and took him into custody, without incident. For the next two days, Bundy would refuse to give his name. When he finally does, the name Theodore Robert Bundy doesn't mean anything to the detectives in Florida. They have no idea that just a week before, he'd been put on the FBI's 10 most wanted list. Here's Ted Bundy soaking up the limelight in front of reporters as the sheriff reads him his indictment for the Chi Omega murders. What do we have here, Ken? Let's see. You always say an indictment, all right? Why don't you read it to me? You're about it for election, aren't you? Mr. Mr. Bundy you got it, didn't you? Mr. Bundy he told me that you told him that you were going to get me. He said he was going to get me. Okay, you've got the indictment. It's all you're going to get. Let's read it. Let's go. Theodore Robert Bundy, you are charged. Indictment. Two counts burglary. Two counts murder in the first degree. Three counts attempted murder in the first degree. Design or intent to affect the death of said Lisa Lee. My chance to talk to the press. Contrary to section 78204, Florida statute. I'll plead not guilty right now. In June 1979, Ted Bundy went on trial for the Chi Omega murders. He had rejected a plea deal which would have spared him the electric chair if he would confess to the murders. The trial would be televised. By then, the name Ted Bundy had become a household name, and he would represent himself. It's clear from the televised proceedings that Bundy enjoyed the attention. It was theater, and he believed he was giving a master performance. He gallivants around the courtroom, engaging the judge as if he can charm his way out of the fact that he's a serial killer. He wears a tweed jacket, a button-down shirt, the kind with the huge lapels, over a white Seattle Mariners sweater, a sort of playful nod to his Washington roots. The TV cameras also captured the courtroom attendees, many of whom were young women who wore hoop earrings, long hair parted down the middle, Basically, by then, what had become well-known as Bundy's type, based on his victims. This bizarre phenomenon, where people have a sexual interest in and attraction for those who commit crimes, is called hybristophilia. Each day, the courtroom is filled with spectators drawn by a fascination with Theodore Bundy himself or by the gruesome details of the crimes. Blood-stained pillows, pictures of the murdered co-eds, evidence that the women were sexually abused. What is unusual to see is that many of the onlookers are women, young women, contemporaries of the five Florida State sorority sisters who were assaulted in their beds a year and a half ago. Every time he turns around, I kind of get that feeling, oh, no, you know, he's going to get me next. But yet you're fascinated by him. Very, very. Every night when I go to bed, I just, you know, I get very scared. I shut my door and lock him, you know. I'm not afraid of him. He just doesn't look like the type to kill somebody. You try to imagine yourself in his place and to see how he's feeling, looking at the pillows with blood stains and everything, if, if he really did it or not. The trial has drawn women from as far away as Seattle, where Bundy is suspected of other sex murders. Why is this happening? According to one psychiatrist, it is a mixture of fear, intrigue, and in particular, sexual attraction. 
And uh, so, yes, I do think this is, in an underlying sense, a sexual attraction, using that word very broadly for the moment. But there is no question but what violence does uh, quicken the pulse of many people, and certainly of young women. The young women themselves aren't too sure what it is that attracts them to the trial. Are you a little scared when you look at them? Yes. It scares me to be in the same room with them, but I know there's other people in there. So. Why do you do it? I don't know. <laughs> Robin Lloyd for CBS News, Miami. Bundy would ultimately be convicted of three counts of first-degree murder. Here he is speaking to the judge before his sentencing. I'm not asking for mercy, for I find it somewhat absurd to ask for mercy for something I did not do. So I will be tortured for and will suffer for and receive the pain for that act, but I will not share the burden. Ted Bundy would get his wish. The judge would not spare his life. This court, independent of, but in agreement with, the advisory sentence rendered by the jury does hereby impose the death penalty upon the defendant Theodore Robert Bundy. Then, in a shocking statement, Judge Edward Cowart would add this. Take care of yourself, young man. Thank you. I, I say that to you sincerely. Take care of yourself. It's a tragedy for this court to see it's such a total waste, I think, of humanity that I've experienced in this court. You're a bright young man. You made a good lawyer. I'd love to have you practice in front of me, but you went another way, partner. In the mid-80s, Bundy would start confessing to some of his crimes. It's a, it's a very difficult thing to describe. Uh, uh, the, the sensation of, the, the, uh, of, of reaching that point where, you, where I knew it, it was like something had, say, snapped, that I knew that, that I couldn't control it anymore, that these barriers that, that I had, had been, uh, I had learned as a child uh, and had been instilled in me were not enough to hold me back with respect to seeking out and, and harming somebody. In this instance, he barely scratches the surface when it comes to his penchant for necrophilia. Well, I went back the next day, and I went back about three days later to do that business that we talked about earlier. And it was a, sort of a crude attempt to disguise the identity, identification of the remains as such. I don't know. It wasn't in retrospect. It doesn't. It sounds pretty incoherent, but that's what was motivating it. Uh, and then maybe about a week to two weeks later, I went back for a third time, again, just to see what was going on. Uh, but of course, after, you know, in June, after a week, it's, you know, what with all the local the wildlife, but there's not much left. You know, there's a lot of psychological stuff going on here that we just don't have time for. I mean, we've just been days explaining. I can, I mean, there is a, there is a, there is an aspect here of, uh, you know, the, the possessiveness, I'm sure you're familiar with, but, you know, the after effects, uh, and this is why I am so keen on the staking out of crime scenes of this type afterwards. Fascination with that, necrophilia, all that. In January of 1989, he would confess to Special Agent Bill Hagmeyer of the FBI's Behavioral Analysis Unit that he'd murdered 30 people from California, Oregon, Washington, Idaho, Utah, Colorado, and Florida between 1973 and 1978. But by the evening of January 23rd, time had run out. In his very last interview, the night before he is executed, he would speak to Dr. James Dobson. It, it happened in stages, gradually. It doesn't necessarily, not to me at least, happen overnight. My experience with, I'd say, pornography generally, but with pornography that deals on a violent level with the sexuality, is that once you become addicted to it, and I look at this as a kind of addiction, uh, like other kinds of addiction, of addiction, you keep, I would keep looking for more potent, more explicit, more it's graphic kinds of material. Like an addiction, you keep craving something which is harder, harder, something which, which gives you a greater uh, sense of, of, of uh, excitement. Until you reach the point where the pornography only goes so far. You reach that jumping off point where you begin to wonder if, if maybe actually doing it will give you that which is beyond just reading about it or looking at it outside the Florida prison where Bundy would be executed, there was a huge media presence. 
detailing the execution from outside the prison step by step. There'll be correctional officers with him right now. They'll be preparing him for execution. They should begin uh, shaving his head and so forth within a few minutes. On January 24, 1989, Ted Bundy was executed in the electric chair known as Old Sparky at 7.16 a.m. Cheers erupted from most of the crowd as the announcement was made. I'd like you to give my love to my family and friends. That was it. Uh, and then uh, they put a, a black uh, hood or a black um, uh, hood over his, his head, a veil, and uh, he was electrocuted. And off to your left, you could see uh, a black hooded executioner. You could only see the eyes, a little slit in the wall on the left-hand side of the room. And uh, you just see the eyes peering out. And the, the, a nod is given to the executioner, and he's executed. Uh, his, he kind of lurched back in his chair. His fist went back like that. Uh, it seemed maybe they gave him 2,000 volts for a minute or so. And as the crowd roared its approval, Ted Bundy and the people who waited so long to see him dead said their final goodbyes. Bundy was dead at 42, but the effects of his evil deeds would live on. Here's Ted Bundy's former law professor from the University of Utah, sharing his experience of meeting with a student in one of his classes whose sister was a victim. One of my students who happened to be from Salt Lake City uh, came forward after the class. He had a somber look on his face, and he said that one of the victims was evidently his sister, that she had disappeared during the time young women were disappearing, and that evidently Ted Bundy had killed her. Her body was never found. Of course, I sympathized greatly with him, and I asked him, do you ever get over a thing like that and he says no my family still is very much disturbed by the fact not only that she's gone but that we could never find her body the victims feel these things for many years after a thing like that happens and i'm very sympathetic to them which brings us back to eight-year-old Anne marie burr whose family never gave up on one day finding their daughter and the truth of what happened to her so many years ago Three years before Ted Bundy was executed, Anne-Marie's mother would write him a letter, a desperate, heartbreaking appeal to the serial killer she believed murdered her daughter, begging him, at long last, to tell her the truth. Ted Bundy's response was, quote, Again and finally, I did not abduct your daughter. I had nothing to do with her disappearance. Bundy would always deny involvement, saying he wouldn't have hurt a little girl. But we know that's not true. His last victim, before he was taken into custody, was 12 years old. And in 1987, Bundy would confide to law enforcement that there were some murders that he would never talk about because they were committed, as he said, too close to home, too close to family, or involved victims who were very young. Anne-Marie's disappearance matched all three of those categories. Now, before I let you go, I wanted to get back to Dr. Katherine Ramsland and her piece in Psychology Today about debunking some of these persistent myths about Ted Bundy. If you'll recall, Cloyd and I spoke about this earlier in the episode, that he was potentially the product of incest. Um, I think also the whole grandfather angle, not just the, that maybe he was Ted Bundy's father, because that would explain everything, right? Not just that, but that he must have been abusive and he must have been abusive to Ted Bundy himself. People who have interviewed a variety of the relatives and neighbors and whatnot do not give a, a portrait of uh, Bundy's grandfather as this mean old man who, who beat people. When you get a, a more well-rounded sense of him, it's unlikely he was abusive to to Ted for the brief time he lived there. But people want that. They want that myth to be true. So, you know, and the other part of that is they want it to believe that he, in fact, fathered Ted by impregnating his own daughter. And that has been debunked with DNA. There's not a whole lot you can do with that. DNA tells the tale, unless you're going to say, well, the person who licked the stamp that yielded the DNA was probably not Ted Bundy or, you know, whatever you want to do with that. But that's that can be what happens when people want to believe a certain thing, because it makes sense to them 
that this person had to have had some kind of awful background. You don't have to have that to become a serial killer. And we have relied far too much on myths and formulas from studies that were had a very small a number of subjects. We rely far too much on some of the conclusions drawn from those because it does make us feel like, well, now we know everything and we're protected. Um, I think it's very important that we know we don't know everything and there are people who aren't going to fit those formulas and we have to be very careful about some of the things we believe. Another persistent myth, which in the scheme of things is pretty benign, but that Debbie Harry from Blondie is convinced that Ted Bundy picked her up in New York and that she survived unharmed. But her story speaks to a larger phenomenon about certain beliefs when it comes to serial killers, including Dennis Rader, the BTK, who Dr. Ramsland interviewed extensively. The Debbie Harry one, Blondie, who's absolutely insisted that Ted Bundy picked her up. Mm -hmm. There's an entire book about women who believed Ted Bundy was after them or tried to kill them or pick them up. Or There's a whole book just on Ted Bundy stories. And all of these women get very angry to be debunked by the facts. And Debbie Harry even said that, and, and I point that out in the article. She said, well, you know, he, he it could have been true because he, he was wandering around the East Coast, like not at the time that you were given a ride by a person in a white vehicle that was in such a state that never had been part of Ted Bundy's car. So she didn't want to hear that. She wants her story to be associated with his. I think people in, who tell me about Dennis Rader, often they're from Kansas or Wichita or something, maybe some, something definitely did happen to them and they want to put on a frame that is the big bad boogeyman of Wichita that was the one who did this to them. It can't be some other guy, even though the probability is that it was. Yeah, we talk about this a lot in my podcast, confirmation bias, unconscious bias, why we do, why we need to confirm what, you know, I mean, it's so, I was doing an interview and I found out that like 20%, and I could be wrong, of, of jurors have made up their opinions just based on the opening statements of the attorneys, you know, whichever one that they confirms whatever bias they they may or may not have against or for the person. So it's really, you know, these biases that we have, it's so, whenever I hear how they, it's so ingrained in these other things, like, yeah, what happened to me has to be, was so horrible that I wanted to be connected to this larger thing for whatever reason that they have, Right. Well, and there's a dip, and I talk a lot about this in my classes about personality uh, types, people with high need for closure, um, always want to have that missing piece. And even if it's false, they cling to it. And that's, that's a problem for jurors and investigators. They cling to it because it's made the whole scenario make more sense to them. And you cannot dislodge it with the facts. I mean, you see that in politics all the time. You can't dislodge it with the facts if it has an emotional um, hook to it. And high need for closure, there's an emotional hook because they really need that consistency and closure. And once it's done, it's done. You can't get it out of their minds. When it comes to our interest in serial killers, there's a lot more going on underneath the surface than most people realize. Reminded me of an interview that I did with an FBI profiler who was saying that it's really hard for us to accept the good looking guy who comes that we allow into our lives because we want to believe it's the guy in the wrinkled raincoat. Why do we have that need to, to do that? Well, it's the power of the media. I mean, they've created some of these formulas because they know what hooks us and it's, it's largely culturally driven. Um, people are more attracted to attractive people. They do tend to believe them more readily than unattractive people. Uh, that's These are just the facts of psychology. So media, you know, picks that up and forms their presentations around that. We've had a lot of controversy over the casting of Ted Bundy, the casting of Jeffrey Dahmer for some of these scripted, you know, semi-documentary movie kind of things. And the producers know lots of people are going to tune in, not just true crime fans, because we have an attractive lead person. So they set us up um, for you know buying into this and 
And I think I think realities are much more complicated, but for some reason we tend to like things simple. I mean, I think you have to always be careful. Um, don't assume because someone's good looking or confident or or verbally fluent um, or that they're educated or you know whatever that they're trustworthy, necessarily trustworthy. I think you have to let people prove themselves. Um, you know, even yeah, here I am. I, I work with people who live double lives, so I can't I can't tell you. I mean, I'm I'm always attuned to what people present themselves as and that even no matter how long you might know someone like the people married to serial killers you might not know their dark side and I, I wish I could tell you something that'll make you feel safer but I don't think I can no I mean I think that that's what makes the genre so popular is that you can and we want to try to figure it out and we want to you know full circle understand it and you know you can't read people's minds at least not yet so I think we think if we figure it out, we're safe. And that's just not necessarily true because too much of our figuring out is based on these formulas that aren't necessarily right. If you're interested in learning more about Dr. Katherine Ramsland's work, which includes a new fiction series, check out katherineramsland.net. The fiction series of a forensic psychologist who runs a PI agency. And many of the cases are based on real things that I've encountered or done. My protagonist is obviously based on me. Some of the people are based on people I worked with on death investigations. So uh, after multiple, multiple nonfiction books, I decided to write a fiction series. I'm reading the first book now. It's called I Scream Man, and it's really good. The second book in the series is called In the Damage Path, A Nutcracker Investigation. And as always, thanks for listening. The Murder Chronicles is a pie-in-the-sky production recorded live in the beautiful Pacific Northwest. We are produced by Brandon Morgan and myself, music by Soundstripe. For Pie in the Sky Media, I'm Carolyn Osorio, your writer and host. Thanks for listening. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.